Welcome to Lydia Finette's Claim Your Confidence, a podcast that will introduce you to the most powerful women in the world as they talk about their own confidence journey. No matter what obstacles you face, Claim Your Confidence will inspire you, motivate you, and give you a roadmap to live the life you want. So, are you ready to claim your confidence? Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Newsstand Studios and Rockefeller Center. My name is Lydia Finette, and I'm so thrilled to have you here with me today. And I am more excited to introduce you, if you aren't very aware of who this is already, to the incredible Deb Roberts. Deb, thank you so much for being with me today. I'm thrilled, and I feel so honored after hearing that great introduction with that British accent. I love it. (laughs) I know. Thanks, Mom. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) I have a lot to live up to now. (laughs) I know. I think we all have a lot to live up to (laughs) with you sitting across the table. And for those of you who have been following Deb's career, I think to any young journalist, it really reads like something out of a movie. You've worked for World News Tonight, Dateline NBC, 2020, Good Morning America, Primetime Nightline. You're a published author with another book on the way. Where did this all start for you, Deb? And and I also worked at NBC News, oh, too. Sorry. So I have to give the other <laughs> network a little bit of shout out, too, because I began my network career there. It all began for me, first of all, as a little girl in Perry, Georgia. I grew up one of nine children. Wow, nine. Nine. Nine children, a very, very simple family, you know, with great faith and and closeness. But I had big dreams. And I'm in small town America, just post-segregation. I mean, I remember segregation, so I'm just exiting that point uh, in our history. You know, my parents struggled. Neither one graduated high school. They both had to stop school to help their families. But they had dreams for their children. And, and I could see that. And, and so they wanted things for us. But even so, when you're in small town, southern USA, oftentimes people don't dream in a big way. They look at what they see around them. So maybe the big job might be being a nurse or it might be a teacher, which are great honorable professions. But people don't think much beyond where they're growing up. I had the audacity to think beyond that. I would watch the evening news like a lot of people. My my family always had Walter Cronkite on at yeah. the end of the day. CBS was the only affiliate we could get uh, with our antenna on the top of the house. And we watched it every night like a lot of other people with their evening meal. And I just remember seeing those reporters who were reporting from all corners of this country and the world. And after a while, seeing the faces change, a black woman reporter by the name of Michelle Clark, Lim Tucker, a black male reporter, Connie Chung, an Asian uh, reporter who became an anchor. And I started to see the faces change. And I just remember just sort of being in awe. Mm-hmm. of what they were doing and and the stories that they were telling and the danger, because this was like the tumult in this country. The civil rights movement was still happening. Vietnam War, you know, all of that was still playing out on our screens. And I just remember thinking, wow, how exciting that must be being out there in the middle of all of this stuff. Now, I didn't tell that to anybody because I'm sure everybody would have thought I was crazy. <laughs> you know, this kid. <laughs> small looking, town, Small USA. town, Georgia, yeah. watching the news thinking, wow. But there was a part of me that thought I'd like to do something big like that. And so that's kind of where it began, I guess, just in my parents' den on the shag carpet watching the news and thinking. Watching the evening news. Yes. So nine children. So where were you in the nine children lineup? 
I'm seventh. Number so seven. Seven girls what and two boys. What does that look like? <laughs> well, <laughs> you have to it, tell me if confidence is not born in a family of no, nine. No, I don't know no, where you get no, confidence. No, I did not find my voice at that point. Well, in some ways, I sort of did because nine kids and and my oldest brother and sister were so much older than me that by the time I was really growing up, they had already left the house. My sister had gone off to college and eventually got married. My brother had joined the Air Force. So there were really seven of us who were sort of actively growing up together. And I had one sister who was very dramatic and creative and then another one who was always like just, just rambunctious and getting into fights with my father. And then another who was just very beautiful and sort of quiet. And then my brother was, you know, doing whatever my brother was doing and so I just <laughs> running away from the girls probably probably yes and torturing you know us yeah and I, and I had two younger sisters and I think I just was sort of quiet and low-key I wanted to sort of just stay out of the fray you yeah. know I didn't want to probably observe and also figure out how I can sort of have a little bit of a voice here and there but not quite sure so I was probably just agitating for a while quietly trying mm. to figure out where my place was yeah did you have anyone, any of your siblings or your parents who you felt were sort of there behind you supporting you as they saw you quiet, obviously not the dramatic one, not the one who was necessarily claiming her beauty and walking around, but sort of as the quiet one who's watching what's going on? Was there someone who said, all right, Deb, I have the next step for you, or was that you? I think my mom could see that, A, I was trying to find my way. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how much you're aware of this, but but sometimes even colorism in, you know, the black community is something. And I was a darker skinned girl in the family. Some of the others had different ranges of colors. And so I not only was shy, but I was also darker skinned and a little bit insecure. And I think my mom just wanted to give me like a little extra something, kind of took me under her wing in some ways, but also could see that I was just yearning to to be heard and to do something. And I was also kind of a goody two shoes as life was going on. And I think she appreciated that. I mean, I wasn't causing a lot of trouble. And then I also really looked to one of my older sisters who was very creative, the dramatic creative one, she pushed the boundaries a little bit. And sometimes I could see that people didn't like that, particularly as a young woman, but pushed the boundaries with just her ideas and things she wanted to do. And she wanted to be a designer and she created clothing that was really beautiful. So I thought that she was cool. Mm-hmm. And I thought that maybe somehow pushing the boundaries is, is, is a good thing, but I don't want to cause trouble. Yeah. So yeah. those things got something kicking in my mind. It's so interesting because you really do have this perfect example. If you're number seven, you have six in front of you to sort of lay the path. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can see which path you mm-hmm. want to choose and pick, frankly, the one piece from each of them that you like to almost make up who you are. And the things I don't want to exactly. pick up. Yes. Equally important. <laughs> and so you alluded to this too. So you're a young black woman growing up in Georgia, post-segregation, but not far from that. So then where did you go from there? You were there the whole through high school through, I mean, take us through the journey. Absolutely. I was there for high school. So we uh, integrated schools when I was in about fourth grade. And how was that from a confidence perspective? Well, you know, it's very interesting because I have a book coming out too, which we'll talk about later on. Oh, yes, we will. And I talk about this in my book, but I remember it was it was scary yeah. because we had existed in these two different worlds. And this is a town of like 10,000 people, but yeah. like all small towns in the South, you know, there was very potent segregation. If it wasn't dictated by law, people sort of just lived on different sides of town. Yeah. We didn't grocery shop together. We didn't do things together. So it was almost like landing on the moon. When, when we integrated schools, you know, the, the white kids were looking at me and I was looking at them. But more so out of curiosity for me, it wasn't fear. 
And maybe that was where that spark of confidence was coming out because I thought, you know, I can make some friends. These these kids are different and but but they'll see that I'm I'm just a regular kid and I can I can be friendly and I think I wanted to succeed in yeah. this new world mm-hmm. and I did soon begin to make friends and you know, I found teachers who were very um, you know, uh, encouraging mm-hmm. and one of the teachers who would have the biggest impact on my life, I would meet a year later Mrs. Dorothy Hardy who was my English teacher. Is that right? Uh, Mrs. Hardy who was very very she had a southern accent. It was <laughs> Very syrupy, and she was very, very meticulous. White hair, red nail polish, uh, pantyhose, uh, you know, skirts always, of course. Yeah. And she was a very tough taskmaster, and she did not take any guff in her classroom. And I remember, rather than being afraid of her, I wanted to please her. To I wanted impress to impress her. her. Yeah. And one day she did walk by my desk after I had uh, done something or another. Maybe it was homework or we were looking at something that we had just done. And she said to me in that Southern way, Deborah, you're a smart girl. You, oh. You're going to go far. Yeah. Let me just tell you, Lydia, she gave me my papers yeah. to, to just to, to have confidence. To the succeed. world is your oyster. The world that. is my oyster. And that really lit a fire in me. And that was kind of where it really took off. Yeah. You know, it's so funny. I find that a lot. And that's why I really asked that question about, was there someone in your early life? Because people really can point back to that one person and they can describe them in great detail and tell how that changed the trajectory of their lives. Because confidence obviously comes from within, but the external, especially when you're a child, hearing that from someone who you do want to impress validates that for you and makes you feel like you can do anything. Mm-hmm. And who also sets a bar. Yes. And she set a high bar and I wanted to reach that bar. Yes. So that also requires confidence to feel that you can do it. Yeah, absolutely. So you go through middle school into high school. And then where does journalism come back in? You've been watching this on your parents' rug, but where do you start to lay the groundwork for that well, in your own life? Well, after Mrs. Hardy, and I will say too, that not only did she sort of spark the desire, but she also helped give me the tools. She demanded, you know, proper grammar. She wanted us to learn poetry. So at that point, um, you know, post Mrs. Hardy, I think I really sort of worked on myself. I didn't want to have the Southern accent. And so <laughs> I, I, I worked on my diction and yeah. just my own self. You know, yeah. I kind of worked on who I wanted to be, how I wanted to present myself. So that was sort of the beginning. It was unfurling a little bit for me there. Again, I was still a little shy, a little insecure. Who isn't in adolescence? But by the time I went on to junior high school, I wanted to try out for cheerleading. Mm-hmm. I, I joined the band. And by the time I went on to high school, I joined chorus. And I started, you know, joining a number of these clubs, that, you know, civics clubs, you know, whatever. And my confidence just started rolling. You know, I think I felt good about myself. I felt, you know, that I was a a smart young woman. I felt that I had something to offer. And so the confidence was just building as we go along. And then, you know, here and there in high school, you know, I got like either uh, some award or I was on the homecoming court. Mm -hmm. And then I started thinking, you know, I really can do more than might be expected of me. And I think I thought I want to go into television. I I don't know that I went back to TV news uh, in Walter Cronkite days, but I thought I want to be in television. Maybe I want to be an actress. Maybe that's what I want to do. And so I started thinking, I didn't join the drama club or, you know, I didn't, I, I, I did some skits and things like that. And I did a dramatic reading when I was in one of the pageants. So I had a feeling that speaking would be something I wanted to do, mm-hmm. but I thought maybe television just in general entertainment. And then when I left high school and went off to college at the University of Georgia. Go mm-hmm. dogs. Um, when I got to college and I decided, okay, drama, that's what I want to do. And I took my first drama course. I thought, no, 
this is not what I want. <laughs> it was fun. It was interesting. But the drama kids were really dramatic and they wore the leotards and they were constantly in character as they were walking around. And I thought, this is not what I want. And then I took a journalism course uh, the next quarter. We were on the quarter system. And I was like, yes. It was like Lucy in like that Charlie spark. Brown episode. That's it. <laughs> That's it. And I I've was in it. love. I was in love. And I thought, this is it. It's television journalism. And from then on, you know, it was that, that I knew that was a, that was the beginning and that was where it all began. You tell this amazing story in my first book, The Most Powerful Woman in the Room is You. I asked women who I admire to do case studies and Deb came back with this case study that made me laugh so hard. And I was thinking about it last night before you came. Will you share the story of your first job in Georgia? <laughs> it's such a, it's such a great story. It's I such can't a great even believe you remember knock. that, oh, but I I only because story. you took it down yeah. and I had forgotten about it. I so you it. mentioned it. Well, you know, like everybody, and I talk about this whenever I speak to kids in you know, classes at, in colleges or high schools, that you have to fail to be able to make your way through life to succeed. Yes. You have to have those failures to kind of look back on. And so it was actually during an internship. I was still in college and I worked at WMAZ-TV, the CBS affiliate in Macon, <laughs> Georgia, right next door to Perry for a summer internship. And I was impressing them so much that they began to let me go out in the field with the reporters. Now, during those times in, in those small markets, reporters would do their own shooting. And, and sometimes they would pair up with another reporter and one reporter would shoot and one reporter would um, do the uh, reporting and then they'd kind of switch off. So the jack of I, all trades. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And these were huge, heavy cameras. And I went out with this reporter by the name of Jan. I wish I could remember her last name because I'm sure she never, ever wanted to see me again. <laughs> Jan, if you're out there, let us know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I went out with her to shoot and she was so excited to, you know, what she was doing. It was like on the uh, Fort Benning Army base. She was getting access to some particular training that was happening and it was sort of an exclusive before we even used the exclusive. And so she was so excited to go and see what these soldiers were doing. And I was going to record it. So I had this huge camera and she had talked me through it and how we're going to do it. And so we're walking and it's hot. It's a Georgia summer and we're Ugh, trudging so through the fields of these <laughs> exercises that these guys are doing. And I'm lifting the camera and she's doing interviews and I'm rolling and I'm thinking I'm kind of cool with her and she's excited. And after a couple of hours of whatever we're doing, we pack up the camera and we we go back to the station. I can laugh now, but let me tell say, you. Funnier now. Honey, there were tears at that point. <laughs> and we get back and she goes to the edit room and she starts to play the tape. And there's like lots of feet and lots of rustling <laughs> and lots of grass and then nothing and lots of black. So the bottom line is when I thought I stopped, I had I was rolling. And when I thought I was rolling, I had stopped the camera. So all her interviews were just black. And there was just lots of like extraneous like walls and floors and... I wanted to die and she wanted to kill me. <laughs> yeah, both of those I things. I was just like, I, I'm telling you, I that was the worst, worst thing that had ever, ever happened to me. And I, mind you, my mother was so excited that I worked at WMAZ. She was telling everybody, my daughter is over at the TV station. <laughs> Look at Deb, Look just at, killing her first job. And I'm thinking, she's about to be kicked out of this first job. And An unpaid internship. <laughs> oh my gosh, it was terrible. I was so embarrassed. And so I went home and I was like, you know, just, uh, oh my gosh, just in defeat and in a funk and crying and so forth. And I don't even know where this came from, Lydia, and I can't really remember if she talked to me or if I just picked myself up. I don't think anybody had a pep talk with me, but I thought I'm going back there the next day and I'm just going to try to make amends. And I must have apologized to her, of course, for the thousandth time. And somehow she got back on the phone and, and explained to the, the, the military 
officer or, or personnel what had happened, and they invited us back to shoot, and I promised her... <laughs> I'm we gonna would get, get it right. It right. I'm gonna <laughs> get it time, right. And I she took me back with her. Oh, that's good. And I checked the red light and the green light and the red light and the green light, and I was able to make it right. And that was my first big failure in TV. Oh my gosh! So I, but I survived to tell the tale. Oh my gosh! My heart <laughs> sunk for you oh, the first time I read that, oh. but I also laughed so hard because. Oh. You but said there's it a lesson does. there. Of there's course. a lesson though because there is possibility after failure, yes. and I did not know that at age 19 or 20, however old I was at the time. Yeah, absolutely. And I think every time something like that happens, it happens, you walk away from it thinking there's nothing worse that's ever going to happen. But I think also one thing that I would say is is a true line across every truly successful person I've ever met. And a lot of the women who've been on this podcast, they have that failure and then they go back for more, mm-hmm. you know? And I would say the same thing. I do this as a charity auctioneer. My first hundred auctions were pretty mediocre and some of them were downright terrible, <laughs> if I'm honest. I still got it back on stage. Yeah. I still go back on stage, even if they don't go well, because that's what you realize. You have to go through it to make yourself stronger and with strength comes confidence. Exactly. And, and, and if you really have the desire and the fire, you're almost fueled by it because you say to yourself, at least I did, I'm going to get better. I'm going to get better. Yeah. Nobody's going to. I mean, I've, I can point to other episodes, not only right outside of college, my next job, but also the next job after that, where my very first live shot, I had never done a live shot. And I didn't tell my news director when I went out that I hadn't. And I got on the air and I was terrible. I was terrible. I was <laughs> Wait, like but why were you terrible? Headlines. Dig in. I want to hear. Oh, my gosh. Give I was, me. Well, first of all, it was this huge explosion at a grain factory and pro- people were probably dead. And it was just like this mm. catastrophic, like the one of the biggest things in this particular area in Knoxville, Tennessee. And they sent me out only because there were no other experienced reporters available because they were out shooting other things further away. So the new gal got sent out and I had never done a live shot. And I got on location and I didn't know like who to ask or what to do. And I went up to the police officers. And again, I had done stories, but I had not had that pressure of doing them live at the 12 o'clock news. Right. And so I I, I was on the air and I was stammering and I was saying, we, 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 we think and <laughs> we think this is what happened. And, and, and we were waiting to talk to the police, but we, heard, we, we hear and we think... And we and 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 we there could even be fatalities, but we we don't know. It was ah, uh, and your mom's was, watching. Like no, thankfully this one daughter. she did not see because <laughs> oh, this was in Tennessee. <laughs> okay, she good. did not see this one. But I I had a major major complete meltdown on the air. And but here's the thing, my news director who probably was also falling apart couldn't believe he sent me out to the scene when I came back to the station. I could see that he was furious. I could see that he was upset, but he did not yank me off the story because he also knew that I had a lot of drive. I was very gung-ho and yeah. I was very, very, he could see that I was competent in something. Yeah. And he sent me back to go do the story for the six o'clock news. And I didn't improve drastically overnight, but I was <laughs> much better. I was a little bit more in command of my facts. And before I left that station, I was one of the best live reporters they had. And I went back each time, not just that story, but the next one, the next one. I was determined to be better, 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 better. And I came back for more, no matter what. (laughs) God, I hope our listeners are listening to this. It's so inspirational. And I think so many people, they tap out before they even have the opportunity to fail. And it is such an important part of the growth process. But honestly, if you look at it in the opposite way, every time you go into something, when something doesn't work out, instead of looking at it as a failure, just look at it as a new pivot. I'd love trying different things that don't work out because then I realize I don't need to waste any time going any further into that. Oh. I tried it. Let's move yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. But like you know, it's, it's easy to say that 
um, in retrospect, in, retrospect. in the moment, you yes. feel like you are just horrible. And yeah. that's what has happened to us, I think, a lot of in our, in our careers yes. when you've blown it and you feel like you're never going to get past that and out of that rut. But you do. You do. Yeah. You do. You go from Georgia to Tennessee. What brings you to New York City? <laughs> Tell us what it's like to get the call to come to New York. Well, I, I, yeah, from Georgia to Tennessee to Orlando, Florida. All right. And I worked in Orlando uh, covering space shuttles and Ooh, uh, getting exciting. my anchor chops. Yes, I covered space shuttles. It was like the beginning of the re-emergence of the program after the Challenger accident and I covered mm. those early launches and then I started to anchor down there and to get lots more experience as a, as a broadcaster and I had that fire in my belly I knew that I always wanted to work for either a 60 minutes or a 2020 or something like that so I was really really hoping 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 and trying 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 and believe it or not even as I was looking at other opportunities at that point I had hired an agent and I was thinking this is my chance now to step out into the bigger leagues I got a call actually from somebody at NBC now to be fair, they, it wasn't like they saw me down in Orlando, Florida, but there was a, a reporter who did some network reporting from time to time who mentioned my name to somebody at NBC. Amazing. So, yes. And and I got a call if I would like to come and you know, meet with them and, and talk to them. And they were looking actually for a space reporter at the time because they had somebody who covered science and space and he wanted to peel off and do something else. So I got an opportunity to come to New York, and that was when I really had to find the confidence, honey, because I was petrified. So tell us about that first day. Do you even remember? I don't. I, it's it's a, probably a blur, but on the phone, they were very, very encouraging. I still remember the vice president of talent's name, Elena, and she was very encouraging. And I came here, and she knew at that point, too, that I was also being looked at by an NBC-owned and operated affiliate. So mm. she was kind of aware that I was starting to you know step out there. And I came here, and I have to tell you, um, Don Brown, who was the president of news at that time, was just great. I could tell that he really wanted to expand his bench a little bit in a non-traditional way. Mm -hmm. Most of the reporters would come from these big, big stations like Los Angeles and Chicago, Minneapolis. But he wanted to look for some reporters around the country in regional areas, maybe, who might be overlooked. So he wanted to try to give me a shot. And I remember, you know, I was like, I probably had a little bow tie blouse. <laughs> and, you know, the <laughs> working suit, girl. The working yeah, like, girl with the suit, the jacket, jacket to the, the interview. Yes, Switching exactly. to the pumps Sensible last pumps, yep. exactly. <laughs> and I remember just, he was so... Uh, friendly, actually, and very encouraging. And I felt pretty good. I mean, I, 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 I spoke up and talked about what my goals and aspirations were and, you know, the kinds of stories I liked reporting. And I, I had to summon everything I had. I remember just having nerves all day long, but I felt like it went well. And shortly after, I got a call offering me the job. I was stunned and thrilled. And from there, I went on to start working at NBC News and Line. This has been your career. This has been your trajectory. And so somewhere along the way, you met your now husband. Yes. Tell us about that. So I had started to try to get some of the bigger assignments at NBC. So when the Persian Gulf War was was bubbling up, I raised my hand and said I wanted to go to war. My mother cried and was so upset, what but was I that wanted like? to go cover. It was it was it was frightening, but it was exhilarating because I got experiences I never would have imagined and they were willing to send somebody who was brand new because a lot of the experienced reporters, you know, some of them had families, they didn't necessarily want to go to this war zone where chemical weapons were being talked about. So it was an opportunity for me as a young reporter to just jump in there and and, and show what I was made of. Yeah. And I had an opportunity and I think I had a, a chance to shine and 
if I can say so. I, I think I did. Yeah, a little, I did so a little for bit. sure. I, I did, a did shine, Beth. <laughs> I was over there for a few, several weeks and I did a, a little reporting. And then I came back and at some point I got sent to Barcelona to the Olympics to cover the Olympics. So I was getting a reputation as somebody who's a little gutsy, who doesn't mind being sent out to go do things that are a little bit difficult. Al and I had just met each other. He was filling in on the Today Show for Willard Scott. I was filling in for Deborah Norville, another oh. Georgia girl. Oh, I love this. And we just met, you know, and he was just like, oh, he was nice. I was nice. He could see that I was very nervous. He said something encouraging and, you know, that was it. And along the way, somewhere or another, it was my birthday and he, I ran into him again and he said, you know, uh, did anybody offer to maybe take you to lunch? And I said, well, no. And he said, well, <laughs> somebody should take you to lunch. I'm, I'm busy today, but one day, you know, maybe we'll do lunch. So we did. So we become friendly enough that by the time I went off to the Olympics, I asked him if he would mind checking on my apartment for me, just maybe gather my mail, maybe water my plants because I was going to be gone for about three weeks. And he said, yes. Now, unbeknownst to me, I guess he kind of was smitten with me a little bit. Uh, I had not. I literally just thought he was a colleague and a nice guy. And he also was married. I didn't know he was going through a divorce, but he was or about to go through a divorce or whatever. I didn't know what his status was. But when I came back, he had not only taken care of the apartment but he had like left flowers and a little note welcome home and so forth and I thought what a sweet guy and eventually post that um, I I moved to Miami at one point Atlanta at another point for NBC that's the peripatetic life of a network correspondent (laughs) I'll shorthand it he asked me out at some point and I had said no and then he asked me out another time anyway I eventually said yes. And oh gosh, that's the sweetest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh, now we'd love Al Roker even no, more. We do. Yes, he's a real romantic. He oh, really I love is. that. Yes. Oh, what a wonderful quality to find in someone. Uh, he was, he's a, he was, and that was the thing because I think, I just didn't think he was really my type to date. He was just a nice guy and a colleague. I yeah. was dating other guys. But after a while, when relationships weren't working out for various reasons, and then there's this really lovely, warm, just encouraging, sweet guy who's good to his mother. He talked a lot about his family. Oh, that's important. I thought, well, why wouldn't I just, you know, give it a shot? And I did. And as he likes to say, then the rest is history. I love that. Yeah. What was that like for both of you? So he's just starting out at the Today Show. You're obviously establishing your career. Was it fun for you to both rise at the same time in your careers? Or were there moments where, because I feel like with two people who are both so dynamic and they're doing so well in their jobs, there must be moments where, especially as you introduce children into the mix. Of course, it's so not easy. Tell it's, us about the partnership. Tell us about the children. Well, everything. you know, interestingly, when we first got serious and then became engaged and then got married, we were both still here at NBC. Before we got married, actually, I started thinking, you know, we're both here. We're both building our careers, even though we're on different trajectories. Al's doing weather in the morning show and I'm doing Dateline. And I just felt like I I kind of wanted my own path. I yeah. didn't want us to be kind of lumped in together as a couple at NBC. Yes. And I was worried that could happen. And I thought maybe now is the time for me to start thinking about looking outside. And my contract was coming up. Mm-hmm. And I really seriously thought it would probably be healthier for us if I you know, or one of us went someplace else and he was really sort of becoming more entrenched in the Today Show. And it happens that Barbara Walters was, (laughs) 2020 was looking to expand and somehow my name was floated. And one day I picked up the phone and 
there was Barbara Walters oh on my the gosh. other line. I know. Oh, you just I had know. such moments in your life. I can't believe it. I know. There was Barbara Walters. Oh and gosh. I almost faded. Yeah, I'm sure. And, and this was before we were being punked. This was a long time ago, but I thought I was being <laughs> was punked before we you. knew that word. <laughs> and there was a very clever ploy, too, because, you know, her executive producer would be the person who would interview me and all of that. But Barbara thought she would at least make the introduction and hello, and we would love to have you come over here and talk with us and so forth. And I was beyond flattered, and I came over over to speak with them and I wound up joining 2020 and Al and I always make the joke that we can keep our wedding anniversary and how long we've been married and how long I've been at ABC together because in May I love to go to ABC and in September we got married oh my gosh and uh, so the sort of beginning of it all exactly really, in many exactly, ways exactly and that was nice actually because I had something a new fresh adventure of my own and he had of course he's making his way up the ladder at NBC and it was kind of nice that we were in different places. Yeah. And still continuing to support one another, exactly. it sounds like, along the way. Exactly. Which I think is so much, and so many of the women who've come on here have said the same thing, that so much about what makes success work in a family is having a, a partner who is equal to you and is doing what you're doing and understands where Absolutely. you're headed. And Absolutely. I feel the same way. I love to hear that. And I love that that's the dynamic. I mean, sometimes it can be a little stressful. We've had a couple of times where as Al began to move more into doing interviews and then celebrity interviews and things like that, there were a couple of times we kind of stepped on each other's uh, feet. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> and, um, yeah. And that was a little bit um, terrifying, uh, I think, to us as a couple, because we didn't expect that to happen. There yeah. was one time where there was a big interview with the big entertainer and and uh, someone had died and there was everybody wanted to talk to this one person who was very close to this entertainer. And I had reached out to her and she had said she was going to do the interview with me. And my folks at ABC were so excited. But she also knew Al somewhere along the way. She was a very capricious person. Within a day or so, she sort of changed her mind and decided, you know, I want to do the Today Show after all. I want to do this with Al and without telling me. Ugh. And so that was a major conflict for us. And I was really not happy. Yeah. And, he, and when mama's not happy. And mama's not happy. <laughs> and he was feeling kind of a little awkward because it wasn't that he went for it. She just said to them, you know, maybe I'll do it with their bookers. When they came to her, she said, maybe I will do it without. And he felt terrible. And I was furious. And I remember one time at dinner, you know, we were trying not to fight in front of the kids, but they knew there was a little discord. <laughs> and I remember one of them going, Daddy, why are you taking mommy's interview? <laughs> and he felt it because I was saying to him, if you were a good guy, you would you would you would refuse that interview. You would decline it because, you know, it was mine first. And it was it was really kind of a tough moment for us. But, you know, we got past it and he wound up doing the interview. But I wound up with my back up against the wall, which is what happens to me a lot when I am up against the wall, I, I, I fall and crumble. And then I stand up and think, okay, now what am I going to do? And I found an interview of someone who was attached to that person as well, who was even better. Oh, and there had you go. a better interview. And he would have even admit it. He probably I probably had a better interview. And it, it was it was all fine, but it was it was it was a difficult time as I we love learned. That there was competition. Even you're like, and just to be clear just to be very just clear, be, my interview was just a smidge better. I love just it. Just a smidge. I love but, it. But you know, I mean we didn't expect that. But there have been times where there have been moments where there's a little competition, but yeah. we both like to say it's friendly competition. What happens in the household stays in the household. He can tell me something about his workplace. I can tell him something about my workplace it does not go anywhere because at the end of the day we both are supporting each other yeah. we want each other to succeed yeah a win for one is a win for both yeah for sure you have two children what was it like to have children in the midst of all of this you know you also have the fame element of this mm -hmm. as a couple and you have 
demanding jobs. Mm. So give us some hints and tips about things that worked for you along the way. And your confidence even is a working mom because yeah. that is something that takes a hit. And that that definitely took a hit yeah. because I remember when um, we had Leela and Leela was my first. I mean, Al had a daughter uh, prior, Courtney, but Leela was my first and I was in my 30s and we really had to struggle. To, I had had a miscarriage and we were struggling to have a child and we wound up doing IVF. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize by the time, you know, the pregnancy really went on and her her birth was about to happen, how attached I felt to this, you know, this impending child and how suddenly my career was starting to feel a little less urgent to me. And so once she was born, I had an opportunity at ABC, an opportunity for a big job. And I was really torn because here was Al who gets up early in the morning. At that point, he was solidly the Today Show weather person. And he he left the house at 430 every morning. And I just wanted to be home with this baby first thing in the morning. And all I could think was now I'm going to hand her over to somebody at 6 a.m. and run out the door and maybe see her later. And that was very, very hard. And that was the first time I think I felt truly conflicted over my career and my family. Mm-hmm. And I declined the job. Yeah, And that was very tough because once I came back from maternity leave, I could definitely feel the difference in terms of the enthusiasm around my career with some of my executives at the office because I think I was perceived as heading Stepping toward the mommy out. track. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, And I, and that was very, very hard. And so I struggled for a few years with not only my own feelings, but some resentment toward Al because mm-hmm. I felt like men don't really necessarily have to make that choice. Yeah. And everybody thought he was a great dad because they would see pictures of him or they or now and again, he would push the baby in the stroller doing certain things or take her to go, you know, maybe a class, he'd go and pick her up. And everybody thought he was great. Yeah. But I was doing all this other stuff all the time and trying to balance and maybe, maybe accept an assignment or decline an assignment so that I could make sure I'm home with my child and I and I and he was just as involved and engaged but it didn't require the same kinds of things for him and also if Leela was sick and something happened she wanted me she wanted mama yeah and so that was very very hard trying to get that balance right and I'm not sure that I actually have the balance right and they're grown now but over time it got a little easier my confidence in myself and what I was doing and also too I think because of just the experience that I had gained at work and what I was able to do there and the positions that I eventually was able to um, attain, I was able to sort of navigate it, but it was hard. Yeah, it is hard. Those ears are hard. And the working mom guilt, the feeling of you want to be going guns blazing in your career, Mm -hmm. and then you hit this point where you are looking at a baby and not everybody feels this way. People have a range of emotions around this, but I, I felt the same way. And you know, I remember having pushed very hard in my career for almost, I had my first child at 34. Mm -hmm. I pushed so hard Mm -hmm. to get to that point. And everything had always been such a sprint Mm -hmm. for all those years. Mm -hmm. And I say, actually, I read in the book a a chapter about the work-life balance and talking about sort of the myth of the work-life balance. But one thing that I definitely have realized in time is that it's okay to sprint and plateau. Mm. And Mm. life doesn't have to be a sprint all the time. And you can give yourself grace. I didn't for the first one, certainly. For the second one, I didn't. By the third one, I had to in many ways because there's nothing. I needed (laughs) to be able to plateau a little bit. Good for you. I didn't make it to three, probably for that reason. But (laughs) Well, I feel like you said nine at the beginning of this, so I really feel like I'm (laughs) JV over here. But I do think that I'm so glad that this conversation is happening 
so much around younger women because mm. I feel like I was kind of on the cusp of it. I'm in my 40s and I'm on the cusp of that conversation. When I first started, it wasn't really happening. It, it wasn't a conversation. Work-life balance? What are you talking about? Yeah. There was no balance. There was you no either balance. just chose the work and you really went gung-ho yeah. or you, you, know, you did some stuff in your personal life, but there was no balance. There was no balance. And I felt very much the same way. And so I'm glad now to see that there is such a robust conversation about it. And I would say to any working moms who are out there or any any moms in general, don't forget to give yourself grace yeah. and don't forget to ask for help from your partner, not even asking for help. Start the conversation early. And you know who had that conversation with me, interestingly enough, Barbara Walters. I love that you uh, just said that. I was pregnant with Leela. We were still at a point in our corporate world where women often didn't want to tell their bosses they were pregnant because yeah. you weren't sure how they were going to react and if they were going to start to write you off early. I had a friend who didn't say anything for a very long time. We weren't quite at that point, but we were still in the throes of that. And I didn't know how Barbara was gonna take it because Barbara was very, very diligent and gung-ho and just, she was all over everything that involved work and aspirations and all of that. So I wanted to have a conversation with her and tell her that I was pregnant. And I will never forget that, how lovely she was, how excited she was for me, and how at the very end she said to me, this is so important, pay attention to your personal life. On some level, maybe I probably should have paid a little more attention to mine. So just make sure you spend that time and take that maternity leave and don't worry. This is important. That was a gift to me because she was sharing her experiences as a woman in this area who had not had that opportunity. I love to hear when women who are a generation or two above really tell you what's going on. Mm -hmm. It's so important. Again, I go back to where we are in the world right now. I feel like there's an openness amongst women of all ages, Mm -hmm. which is just... So refreshing to see. Yeah. So you've already been through such an incredible career. This year has been, well, last year was incredibly difficult too. And then this year (laughs) has been incredibly difficult. We were talking before the interview a little bit about your confidence and what you've learned through. And and for many of you, I I think everyone will know this, as I said to Deborah when she came in here, I feel like Al and Deborah Roberts are the uh, Tom Hanks and (laughs) Rita Wilson of America right now. We'll be starring starring in a movie next year. It was like when when Tom Hanks got COVID and everyone was like, oh God. Oh my God. And they had it together. I feel like everybody felt the same way. We're just rooting your family on Uh, in such a huge way. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about what you've been through. Give us some updates on how you are. Uh, Well, first of all, I have to say, I just, I want to thank anybody and everybody out there who held us in their thoughts and in their prayers. I've never, ever experienced anything as huge as we felt with the support of people around us. Emails, uh, social media uh, messages, just, I mean, just, oh my gosh, just the the prayers. We were lifted. We were absolutely lifted when Al had this catastrophic health scare last year. And he has talked about it. And, um, you know, it was very, very, very frightening. There was no one name for it. It was a a kind of a a perfect storm of events that had happened to him, but he essentially had this major blow up of his insides, probably, probably sparked by COVID in the very beginning, but then other stuff that had happened. It was just one thing after the other, and he was in the hospital for a total of a month out of commission for a couple of months. And it was a very, very touch and go situation in the hospital with a team of doctors having to pay attention to everything from his blood levels to his inflammation in his internal organs to ulcers that they found inside his body. I mean, just just all kinds of stuff that had gone on. So it was a very, very, very frightening time for us. And I have to tell you, I don't know where it came from. And I, I've heard people say this, and I guess it is true. You do not know what you're capable of until you are in a position where you are pushed to have to 
stand up and fight mm-hmm. and 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 have to just you know find those reserves to either fight for yourself or fight for somebody you love as in this case with Al and I just jumped in there to be his advocate I was very very fortunate and we both will be quick to say this I'm fortunate that I had um, I work at a a company at ABC that was so supportive I have a job that allowed me this kind of um, freedom and grace to to be with my husband and good health care I mean first of all we had great doctors top-notch doctors and great health care so that first I have to say was the thing that that we are most grateful for. But I was able to be there with Al and be his advocate. And I've heard people talk about needing an advocate in the hospital, and I've never really fully understood what that means. But in our case, with such a uh, frightening and and devastating, life-threatening illness, it was critical. And I was there with him, not around the clock, but for the most part, from the first thing in the morning till late at night. And my daughter was here from, uh, from her home in Paris, and she was helping do the same thing. And you know, kind of making my way through. And I think as a journalist, my confidence, as you said, as a journalist, as somebody who is curious and who can jump in and learn things, I I would throw in my thoughts about, you know, the care. I'm not a medical reporter, mm-hmm. but I know enough from what I've reported. I would throw in thoughts. I mean, I was the one who first said, you know, he did have COVID a month ago. You guys should, should we think about that? that out. Yeah. Should we check that out? He did have COVID a month ago because I knew that it had led to inflammation and blood clots with people. And the doctors were open to it, but eventually really came around to thinking, you know what, maybe that was was something that we didn't know. There were doctors sometimes who, not many, because most of them were great, but there were one or two who the bedside manner wasn't quite as good as I thought it could be or as as compassionate as I thought it could be. Mm -hmm. It was sort of like just the facts. Let me tell you this or that. And I had a few talks with some of those people to remind them that this is a patient. This isn't a case. This isn't a chart. This is a patient. And my daughter at one point said, Mom, Mom, please, you you, you, you don't. I said, no, I don't apologize. I don't apologize for fighting for my husband. I am here to fight for him. And I think if I didn't have the confidence that I had, I would not have been able to to do that and to, I think, just sort of own what I needed to own for him. Yeah. And to help to help with his care. Yeah. A lifetime of building confidence yeah. so that when you're really pushed to the wall, it comes through. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, that, that, and that's what's required. I mean, whether it's a health scare or any other kind of crisis, you have to have that confidence to believe that you have a voice and you have a right to have that voice and you have a right to sort of demand things from other people. Yeah. And, you know, I'm a Southern belle. I yeah. don't go out screaming in the hallway. <laughs> I'm the it same. I hear you. It wasn't yeah. a Shirley MacLaine moment from uh, in terms of endearment, but I, but I would definitely assert myself. And I felt that people around me actually doctors, medical staff, nurses, I think they came to respect it yeah. because they knew they had somebody who was that with it and who got it and who was, you know, uh, engaged and 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 willing to 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 be there and 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 demand yeah. whatever we needed. Well, this all started at the beginning your confidence journey as you said in school with your teacher and so I want to end this interview mm. by asking about your book. Well, I am so, so excited to talk about my book. You're an author. And I have um, authored a book with my husband before. We did a book about us and family life, but this is my first outing by myself. And the book is called Lessons Learned and Cherished, The Teacher Who Changed My Life. And it is a book of essays that I uh, collected over the last year from various people, from Brooke Shields to Oprah Winfrey to Ava DuVernay to Danielle Baloud, the chef, to Kenneth Cole, to Misty Copeland, to Lucy Liu, to my best friend, who's a CEO of a Girl Scouts uh, chapter down in Nashville, Tennessee, Darren Walker with the Ford Foundation. Anybody and everybody I knew who was either interesting or just, I don't know, just an intriguing person, I reached out to and said, Tell me about a teacher. And 
everybody immediately lit up. They wanted to talk about a teacher. Somebody, Lorraine Toussaint said one of her teachers saved her life because of her her lack of confidence with because of another teacher who had damaged her psyche so this other teacher came in and sort of saved her life I mean just to hear these stories of teachers even tough teachers some Melody Hobson tells a story of a teacher who was really hard on her but she said you know what though that's why she developed grit Mm. because she knew and on some level she thinks the teacher knew that she could take the toughness so that was very interesting so just to hear these stories um, Ann Patchett who talks about her teacher, Anna Quinlan, a writer herself who talks about the nun who shaped her and the first person who told her, you are a writer. And she actually believed it. The sto- Al Roker is Al- actually in the book. <laughs> America's sweetheart, that. Al Roker. So many stories. I mean, Lydia, I just, I, Robin Roberts and, 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 and my folks at ABC, Will Reeve, who tells a great story about the teacher who was there for him after his father, Christopher Reeve, had passed and his, his mother, Dana, had died. Yeah. I mean, just the stories of these teachers who inspired, who lit that flame like Mrs. Hardy. Mm-hmm. I start off talking about Mrs. Hardy and just, we just unfold all these stories. And in my mind, it's a love letter to teachers who right now, are going through it and who have never felt probably more disregarded and disrespected than ever before. This is to say, we honor you. We appreciate you. You are treasures and we love, love you. And that's what this book is all about. What a wonderful thing to say. What a wonderful testament to our teachers. And I cannot wait to pick it up. So Deb, First and foremost, thank you so much for being here. I know you are incredibly busy and I really appreciate you taking the time to sit in this podcast with. I have enjoyed every second of it as I know our (laughs) listeners will too. It was a thrill. Where can we find you? Tell us all of your social handles. Tell us when the book comes out. Give us everything. Okay, so of course I'm at ABC News. So Deb Roberts, ABC, that's Mm -hmm. my um, Instagram handle. And I do my little Instagram lives, which is like a little bit like a podcast because I find interesting people like you. So you can find me on the social media. You can find me on 2020. And of course, you can go online to ABC News and find 2020 for the reports that I'm working on. If for any reason you missed it, you can go on and find it there. And, um, you know, just sort of all over the place. I mean, I'm out there, baby, but I've got this book coming out and you'll definitely see me out there with that, promoting that. I will be ready to see it. I will be the first in line to buy it and I better be able to get an autograph from you. I think you you might get one or two, (laughs) but it comes out in May and you'll be able to get it for the teachers in your life. I think it's Teacher Appreciation Week or month at that point. And, you know, librarians. I talk about my librarian in there. So anybody in your life who appreciates a teacher, who might be a teacher, or just you who had a good teacher, you'll love this book. Well, thank you again for being here. And I want to thank our listeners for tuning in to claim your confidence again. My name is Lydia Finette. You can find me on www.lydiafinette.com or I'm very busy on Instagram always. A huge thank you to Rockefeller Center and Tishman Spire and especially Joe, our amazing producer, who puts this all together and makes it sound so good. I want to leave you all with this thought. Deb just talked a little bit about this and I'll use this as a little bit of a pickup for your book. Why don't you shoot Deb or me or both of us maybe a DM and tell us about the person who changed your life and gave you confidence because everybody loves a shout out and I would love to see those people get as use this word earlier, which I love, lifted. Love that. With that, everyone have a great week. I cannot wait to be here again with all of you and remember, claim your confidence. Let's get going. Yes. Yes.